Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. All right, gang. So this is now officially not my first rodeo. However, it is my second. Mark 11, like many of the chapters of Mark, has a lot of episodes packed into one chapter. We're just going to cover Mark 11 verses 1 to 3. This is from the message translation. When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany on Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him and will return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door at the street corner and untied it. Some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples replied exactly as Jesus had instructed them, and the people let them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus, spread their coats on it, and he mounted. The people gave him a wonderful welcome, some throwing their coats on the street, others spreading out rushes that they had cut in the fields. Running ahead and following after, they were calling out, Hosanna, hooray. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. He entered Jerusalem, then entered the temple. He looked around, taking it all in, but by now it was late, so he went back to Bethany. The end of this is, is so funny. It's like so anticlimactic. He's just like this huge triumphal thing, and he gets there, and he's like, I'm gonna dip. <laughs> Nothing going on. So there there's this school of thought called the German Higher Criticism Movement, which really got legs underneath it in the 19th century, uh, you guessed it, um, among German higher critics. And the whole point of the movement was like, if you can think of a word that characterized it, it was the demythologization of the Gospels. So the idea is that science is really popping off at the turn of the century, and it becomes the model for how things should be done. So biblical scholars, historians, philosophers, like science is so successful, we should mimic that method as we approach our own discipline. And what that meant is we were interpreting the world through Newtonian mechanics, there's cause and effect to everything. And then you come to these ancient sources, these ancient texts, and there are miracles, and these things don't fit comfy into this worldview. So what do we do? Well, I try to keep the Bible, but demythologize it. So they're like, Jesus is walking on water. The disciples thought it was a miracle, but really there was like a sheet of clear, like plexiglass kind of material that Jesus was pretending to walk on, and he tricked the disciples. So there's all these like natural explanations for everything in the text. But the motive for this was not illicit or mean. I think for one thing, it was just not casual in the 19th century in those circles to just be like, I'm not a Christian anymore, or God is made up. Um, you still wanted to keep the trappings of Christianity, but kind of remove the parts that were spooky and didn't fit into the modern worldview. All of this will make sense why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> but there are like contemporary people that have similar takes, like a famous Bible scholar, Bart Ehrman. He has a book called How Jesus Became God. And in it, he asks, if Jesus went around Galilee, proclaiming himself to be a divine being sent from God, could anything else that he might say be so breathtaking and thunderously important. And yet none of these earlier sources, the Gospels, says any such thing about them. Did they, all of them, just decide to not mention the one thing that was the most significant about Jesus? Almost certainly the divine self-claims in John are not historical. So the claim there is that there's no point in the Gospels, allegedly, um, especially in Mark, we'll say, where Jesus just goes, hey guys, I am God. And because of that, some scholars like, well, Jesus never said he was God, so why do we think he's God? We're importing 
our 21st century picture of Jesus back into the text where it never really came from. However, in current historical Jesus studies, the most important wave that is taken over is not understanding Jesus in terms of mythology and folklore, but in terms of Jesus' Jewishness. Jesus grew up in first century Palestine. So we have to read the text through the lens that the original hearers and receivers would have read it from. And because of that, I'll say that Jesus never says the words, I am God, but he does a lot of things that indicate to his viewers that that's exactly what he's saying. Much like from the nameless hero of John Carpenter's 1998 cult classic movie, They Live, he says, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> the implication is clear. Someone might say, well, 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 he never said he was there to kick ass, did he? And you're like, well, no, but like you can put it together what he's saying by the context. And Jesus does that constantly. This episode is often referred to in Christianity as the triumphal entry. It's the first time where Jesus is not as secretive with what he's saying or his mission. He's coming on to stage, turning on the spotlight, and he's like, this is what I'm here to do. So he rides in on a colt. Seems like a weird, arbitrary thing, but it's not because we have to remember that Jesus is a Jew talking to Jews in Jerusalem. He's doing something very intentional by commandeering this uh, young donkey. And I'll read to you guys what he's doing. It's actually hearkening back to Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 just because I think it makes the story more interesting. But what's most relevant here is verses 9 and 10. So this is from Zechariah, Old Testament. This is verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read 1 through 8 also. So it says, God's message challenges the country of Hadrach. It will settle on Damascus. The whole world has its eyes on God. Israel isn't the only one. That includes Hamath at the border and Tyre and Sidon, clever as they think they are. Tyre has put together quite a kingdom for herself. She has stacked up silver like cordwood, piled gold high as haystacks. But God will certainly bankrupt her. He will dump all the wealth into the ocean and burn up what's left in a big fire. Ashkelon will see it and panic. Gaza will wring its hands. Ekron will face dead end. Gaza's king will die. Ashkelon will be emptied out and a villain will take over Ashdod. I will take proud Philistia down to peg. I will make him spit out his bloody spoils and abandon his vile ways. What's left will be all gods. A core of survivors, a family brought together in Judah. But enemies like Ekron will go the way of the Jebusites, into the dustbin of history. I will set up camp in my home country and defend it against invaders. Nobody is going to hurt my people ever again. I'm keeping an eye on them. So he's talking about the kingdoms and the powers and the principalities, so to speak, of how the world runs. All these powerful cities and governments and God is like all of these are meaningless. It'll all be washed away. All the dustbin of history. And then verses 9 and 10, it says, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise your voice, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. A good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding a donkey. A mere colt of a donkey. I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations. A peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. And when Jesus unties his colt, he's enacting with his body for the people watching him, this part of Zachariah. So he's here to offer peace to the nations, but peace is an ambiguous word. We have to remember that this story, the context is that the Jewish people are under the oppression of Roman rule and it was peaceful. In fact, they had a name for it, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Things were stable. But as the Scottish ruler Calcagus, on the eve of a battle with the Roman legions, he reportedly scoffed at Roman peace saying like robbery, butchery, and rapine they call government. They create a desert and call it peace. 
There's this philosopher I really love named Thomas Talbot, and he says in his book, The Inescapable Love of God, that he shares the sentiment. He says, nothing but reconciliation could ever qualify as a true victory over evil. Or in the words of uh, New Testament scholar Mark Strauss, true peace cannot be achieved by crushing one's enemies. It can only be found through reconciliation and restoration. Jesus, the servant Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve. His death brings about true peace, a reconciliation between God and human beings. I think these words and these sentiments have serious implications for, um, I guess, what you might call each one of our final fate <laughs> for the afterlife. So those things in mind, the idea that nothing but reconciliation could ever qualify as a true victory over evil, and that Jesus is supposed to be a king that's bringing peace to us. What does that mean for our, our, our picture, I guess, of God's redemptive work? Like, what does that say about the concepts of heaven and hell? Like some part of me cringes at like quoting Narnia in a serious way, but I love in Lion, the Witch, and the Road Robe at the end where uh, Aslan gives himself up in place of Edmund, and the witch is like, "You idiot! I did it! Like I beat you!" And in some way, she was right. Like she killed Aslan, but Aslan's like, "Yeah, but there's a deeper magic. You're at the surface level." And I think Jesus is doing that a little bit too, where he's addressing the deeper magic. Yeah, there was a moment there where I was just into business things. I listened to like management podcasts. It was actually my best friend. It was a manager and he was listening to it and he's like, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And we would go on business meetings together and just listen to podcasts in the car. And there was, I don't remember the podcast or what the larger point was, but I remember one of the guys was talking about being in a management position. And he's like, look, if you have to like go into every room you're going into and you have to keep saying the words, I am the manager as like a way to get people to listen to you, you're not the manager. Like you're like saying those words, but you don't have any authority. So like you're trying to shore up authority by like using the scary words. Real managers don't have to like constantly be saying that. And I think Jesus is doing that with his behavior. Alice and I were talking at Whole Foods today and how it, it is in some ways the orthodox position that dropping a nuke on people generated peace for us. <laughs> like, did it? These blow up all those people? It's a peace of a sort. Like, the war's over, but like, I don't know how much that peace is worth. So, the idea of justice and peace and reconciliation have serious implications for how we view God and soteriology and eschatology, all the ologies of theology. <laughs> um, there's this famous Greek folk story legend uh, about Alexander the Great and this like famous pirate named Diomedes. Diomedes. And the idea is that Diomedes has been sailing the seven seas, so to speak, doing pirate stuff. And he gets captured. Everyone's like, this is a death sentence criminal, this pirate. But before passing sentence, they bring him before Alexander. And Alexander interviews him first to kind of get an accounting for this dude's actions. And Alexander the Great asks him, what could possibly give you the right to sail the seas, taking by force things that don't belong to you? And the pirate goes, oh, emperor, what could possibly give you the right to travel the world? world, taking by force things that don't belong to you. What gave you the right to occupy the land of Egypt? What made you king of Persia? By what authority did you invade the land of India? Because I own my own boat, I am called a pirate. You, however, use your army and your navy, and so you are proclaimed the emperor. If you ask me who is the greater criminal, I cannot say. I do know, however, that if I had such weapons at my disposal, I would be the emperor too. Likewise, if the Pax Romana was, in scholar Strauss's words again, quote, enforced through ruthless oppression at the slightest sign of dissent or rebellion. And if, quoting him again, true peace cannot be achieved by crushing one's enemies, then we have a situation on our hands. Here's the problem. Diomedes told Alexander that they were in fact guilty of all the same crimes. Their difference was that since Alexander was the emperor and commands a governmental fleet, the exact same behaviors, they're okay. But those very same actions, if done by a pirate, a non-government agent using non-government tools, they'll get you a death sentence. So in this case, Diomedes is what you might call a 
little Alexander. He is what Alexander is writ large, but writ tiny. And the question I think that generates for me at least is, is God a big Caesar Augustus? Could God have the same exact conversation towards Caesar Augustus and Caesar Augustus is like, I'm doing all the things you're doing, achieving your ultimate purpose through crushing your enemies, casting them into hell forever. If I achieve peace through crushing my enemies, we go, that's the evil oppression of Rome. How horrible. But if God does it, we go, God can do what he likes. The impulse to justify God's behavior is the same impulse I think we would try to use to justify Alexander's behavior. Just like the emperor, who we just say has the authority to do what he wants because he's the emperor, we might say that God has the authority to do what he wants because he's God. But that's not a God I think I know. I think that entering Jerusalem on a cult in the text says that he came to offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. So this comes from the philosopher um, Peter Van Eenwagen. It's a great Christian philosopher. And he just has this quote in his book, Metaphysics, not talking about the same topic we're talking about, but I think it's relevant here. He says, could it really be, for example, that racism or child abuse or genocide or serial murder are morally unobjectionable? If an unimpeachable source, God say, were to inform me that child abuse was morally unobjectionable, my dominant reaction would be one of horror. But I should also have a negative reaction to this revelation that was more intellectual, more theoretical. I should have to conclude that I didn't understand the world at all. I should have to say I simply didn't understand how it could be that there was nothing morally objectionable about child abuse. And parodying that sentiment, I would say, likewise, if God is love, and if God's capable of taking people that he loves and casting them away forever, not to say eternally and maybe even corporeally torturing them, then me, I should have to conclude that I don't understand the first and most important thing about God. And maybe I don't, but I believe God tells us that we do. I'll close that thought with Paul at the end of Romans 8 says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.